Welcome to the Simple Gospel Church Podcast. Raising a generation that will stand for Christ. We're going to be doing understanding scriptures this evening. But before we get started, I'd like us to say a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you because you are God. You are God alone. Thank you because there is no one indeed like you. Because if there was, it would be terrible. Because you are righteous, you are just, you are kind. Everyone is not like that. Everyone can't be like that because they are not God. Father, be exalted in the name of Jesus. Father, we're here as your children to learn more about you. That's the entire point of our journey. To know you and know you more. Father, we ask that. Our dive into the scriptures, Father, will bear fruit in the name of Jesus. Teach us more about you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Father, I ask that uh, you feel me with your spirit. Give me the grace to speak what it is that you have for your children this evening. Father, I am an incredibly imperfect human being. I have no designs or belief. That, Lord, I, I know everything. But, Lord, I do have faith in you. That you speak through your children. And, Father, you speak through me and use me today in the name of Jesus. I pray for your children. Because, Lord God, we're human beings. I pray that, Lord God, our hearts of stone, your tons of hearts of flesh in the name of Jesus. Let your word dwell richly in us. So that we will glorify you. For it's in Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. So, uh, today we are going to be concluding what we started talking about in the morning, which is essentially, we'll be finishing up John chapter 17. So, if, if you recall, even though it was a couple of hours ago, but if you recall, we, we talked on John chapter 17 and we read from um, 12 to 20, right? So today we are going to be reading from 21, or now, this evening, we are going to read from 21 to 26. And that's where we are going to plant our flag. And that's where we are going to end the discourse around John chapter 17. So, who can just give us a very brief refresher of what we did in the morning? I mean, this is not a week ago where you say, ah, well. The, the stress of the week has wiped it all off. So, this morning. So, okay, just a quick refresher. Let's, um, let's bring ourselves back to, to the middle of this discourse that we're in. So, everybody's opening notes. This, okay, Stadio wants to Talk. Please give her the mic. Um, there's something that I remember right from the class this morning. Just to be sure. <laughs> Can I do that? Yes, yeah, sure, you speak. Okay, so I know that in just um, the book of John we're reading today, we, or rather, you explained what it meant for us to be sanctified with God's word. Where Jesus was praying, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is true. And basically, it was almost like he was praying a prayer of, 
Will I say separation slash sanctification? Because before then, he was also talking about how the father should keep his own from the evil. And how, like, even though we're in the world, one not that he should basically keep us from the evil. And you explain that the evil is not just Satan or sin, as some of us answered, but that the evil basically means um, somebody backsliding or apostasy, more or less, having to, will I say, abandon or walk out of the faith and things like that. And then you, we also learned about how, because we went a bit into persecution and how the people or disciples at that time, they all died gruesome, gruesome deaths and um, God, of course, was knowledgeable of that, or that he willed or rather, yes, there was only that there was no form of death that he died that he did not know about. But I think that one of the major highlights was how the evil there is not just sin or Satan or evil deeds of man, but that um, it has more to do with walking away from the faith. So that's where I land. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. So, let's have John chapter 17, um, verse 20 to 26, not not 21. Read from verse 20. That's what this time, I actually do want the CSB. Right. Um, so, just ever so briefly, um, when we looked through verse 17, we saw Jesus praying for his disciples. And one of the things we talked about was how we are kept in Jesus and what it means to be kept in his name. So, what that entailed, what's, what that's what that looked like and then we we moved from there to explain the idea of persecutions in the world about what it meant to be sanctified by god's truth which is his word god's word is truth and what that entails what that means for us to live in that truth and understanding that ultimately when Jesus prayed that his disciples be kept from evil. It wasn't that they were to be kept from death. Or they were, kept, they were supposed, to be, supposed to be kept from discomfort. Because, like I explained, they all died gruesome deaths. But it's also very important that they all died on God's terms. And not the terms of man. So, it's one thing for a saint to die in the service of God. And it is, it is as God willed than for a person to die outside of God's will. It's, it's, why, it's why we sometimes mourn some individuals who die because there's a feeling in your heart that it wasn't supposed to be now. There's a sense of, no, it was not supposed to be now. And it's not about age or anything. No, it's just about the fact that it's not supposed to be now. Jesus died age 33. But that was the time he was supposed to go then. Same thing with a bunch of the disciples. Died. You say, ah, they did not live to their ripe old age. But on God's terms, dying outside of that is an evil. Because <laughs> it shouldn't be. 
shouldn't be. And so, we talked all the way to verse 19, where we talked about how Jesus sanctified himself, essentially separated himself as a sacrifice, because it is by that separation that we too can then have that same sanctification, that we too can be set apart. It is because he died and the cloth was, the cloth was torn in two, the temple curtain was torn in two, that we too can also carry ourselves and say, ah, here we are. We are here. Amen. So verse 20 says, it says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Verse 21, may they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them. That the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want the, those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. Can I switch this to NKJV, please? Okay. Okay, so we'll look at this bit by bit, just as we did in the morning. Verse 20 tells us something very interesting. It's, this is not a new topic to anyone here. Like we, we, at one point or the other, you might have come across this prayer. This shows the universality of the death of Christ. It shows that Jesus did not come to die for only a set of people. He did not simply come to die for the Jews. He did not simply come to die for a privileged few. But he came to die for all. So, we have an illustration of this. If we turn to the book of John chapter 11 verse. John chapter 11 verse 51. So, um, verse 50. Verse 49. Okay. It says, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Now, just very brief background. This happened after the resurrection of Lazarus. Right? And the Bible tells us that some people who were with Mary, his sister, seeing that Lazarus has been resurrected, they gathered, they went to go and tell the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they wanted to plot to kill not even just Jesus, Lazarus too. <laughs> so, that was their plan. And they were deliberating among themselves. And I said, this man does miracles. That he continues to do miracles. That if we don't stop him, that everyone will believe on him. And the Romans will come to take away our place. Right? Our place 
comes to take away our place, our positions, essentially. Our position and our kingdom, in quotes. Because, I mean, they were working in servitude to the Romans. They are paying taxes to Rome. But uh, somehow, the fact that they were able to... And it just shows you that human beings, it's not, it's not today that we've been bent. You know, it's not today. We've been bent since. And being bent is not, a, it's not an African quality. It's, it's a human quality. You can see that these people were in a suboptimal system, whereby they were in servitude to another set of people. But for the sake of their position and their own place, they were willing to kill the light of the world that, oh, let it be okay for us. So, it's not today. Anyways, so that's what happened. And while they were making these deliberations, this man decided to speak. He was the high priest that year, Kaipas. And this was what he said. Okay, he says, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Let's stop there. So, we see here that he prophesied the death of Jesus not only for the nation of Israel, because Jesus did die for the people of Israel, but that he died for the children of God scattered all over the world. Everyone was being brought into this covenant promise with Jesus Christ. So, what this tells us is that you're not an afterthought. You're not, it's not like Jesus died and said, oh, the food for the children was too much. These leftovers, let's give the rest of the world. Oh, this salvation, salvation is so plenty. And the children of Israel have taken their own. Oh yeah, the rest of the world, they are come and, come and fight for the rest of the scraps. No, you had always been the plan too. And that's a huge promise because it sits us firmly in the covenant of Jesus Christ. It sits us firmly in that covenant that God has had with us through the cross. That it is not a Jewish covenant. It is not a covenant that is set apart for just this set of people, but for all men to come. The plan of has always been to reconcile the world to himself. That has always been the plan. It was not an afterthought. It has always been the plan. And that's important. Because there are so many people who do not realize that they are part of the plan. Jesus died for the past, the present, and the future. For every single individual, he died for them. But that was not the only point. Let's look at John chapter 10, verse 16. This was where Jesus talked about himself being the good shepherd, yeah? So he said something else. He said, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, 
and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So, you have always been the plan, right? And when I say you have always been the plan, it's, it's personal, but it's also general. It's not, um, it's not some secret knowledge. But not just that, the plan was always the unity of the body. The flock was always meant to be one. The flock was always meant to be one. And that means both Jews and Gentiles. That was the symbol or the symbolism behind the tearing of the um, temple curtain. In that now everyone, plus Jew, plus Gentile, now had access. And we saw a furtherance of this in the book of Acts. When Peter went to the house of Cornelius... And he prayed for Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and Cornelius' household. Cornelius was not a Jew. So this was significant because it meant that the same spirit that had been set forth to encompass or to empower the Jews for them to start the church was also available for the Gentiles. And so it then makes what comes after have more significance. So if you look at verse 21, or is this um, of John chapter 17? That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So what we have here is a situation in which each and every one of us had always been in the plans of God. It was always God's plan for the church to be united. But the unity of the church had a purpose. And that purpose was that it was to be a proof that God sent Jesus Christ. So, Christian unity is part of the proof that God sent Jesus Christ. Christian unity is part of the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is this so? First, I guess, I guess the first question we need to ask ourselves is what is Christian unity? So if I say Christian unity, what do you understand by that term? Who wants to answer us? Christian unity. What does it mean? Okay, who knows what Christianity is? Nobody knows what Christianity is. That's what you're telling me. Who knows what Christianity is? Who does not know what Christianity is? Okay. So the people who don't have their hands up, so what which is it? Who knows what Christianity is? Who does not know what Christianity is? Okay. So the people whose hands are not up, what is it? Because you're telling me you know what it is, but then you're telling me you don't know what it is. That's not possible. That can't work. So, which is it? Please give Bookie, let her answer. So, to me, I think um, Christian unity is the, is the one thing that unites us all as a Christian, the, which is the gospel, Jesus Christ himself. I think 
Christian unity is that oneness and the significant thing that makes us a Christian. Give sister, give sister Kathy. What's Christian unity? What she said. Christian unity is a unity that binds us, and what binds us is Jesus Christ. But it's very interesting because, based on what we're reading, that regardless of what we might face as Christians, regardless of what decide. Other people were wondering, like, how can these people be so united, even in the face of persecution? Okay, it was not just about, okay, um, we have this great Messiah, you know, who performs miracles. They didn't understand that, again, what unites us is Jesus Christ, his death, birth, and his resurrection. It makes sense to me. But, um... For us to understand this, because it won't make any sense for me to just say Christian unity is this thing that is so deep, so powerful, and you just have to experience it. That, that still keeps us in the realm of the abstract. In the simplest terms, Christian unity is oneness of purpose. Not necessarily oneness of belief. This does not mean that we do not believe the same thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it is the understanding that we are united in what it is that we are to do about it. What I mean by that, in simple terms, is that we are not all going to agree on every single point of this Bible. We are not. That's a fact. If I had to ask you all the questions, all the interesting questions, oh, do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? If I ask, do you believe in... Um, premillennium tribulation or postmillennium tribulation. Do you be- I might hear different things. Therefore, our unity cannot be based simply on belief. It cannot simply be based on oh, we have the same thing, all of us. That's how we are. No, it is in purpose. Because that's what unity actually is. Unity is people. Working towards a single thing. Because that is how the Trinity is also united. They are not the same. Because we say that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person. The Father is a distinct person. Jesus is a distinct person. And for all intents and purposes, we even say that there are differences in personality. But there is a oneness in their purpose. And what it is that they have set out to do in the world. And as believers, that is what unity looks like for us. It's the fact that we are united in what it is that we are doing. And an example we have of that, we have in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let's turn there and look. It says, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. 
And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. One of the biggest indicators of Christian unity is what we read in this particular verses. It was the fact that there was a oneness of their heart. Oneness of their heart. And that oneness of, of their heart bled out into their purpose and what they were to do. And it was this quality, not exclusively this quality, but it was this quality that also added to the church. Because those who were being saved, a lot of them were being saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, that's what saves. But you see, there was also the fact that these people, this unity, I want it. Because ultimately, every single human being has a yearning to be united and at peace. It's a yearning. So, there is an annoying thing that used to happen back when this world was still popular. I don't think it's really popular anymore. I don't think many people tune in to watch it anymore. But if you're old like me, you might remember a time whereby if they're doing Miss World, it would be on NTA, everybody would gather around the TV and sit down and watch Miss World, who is the person that has been to. And every time they had their question and answer session, where they would question the, you know, the beauty contestant, they, they all had one answer, right? So, what, oh, if you could do anything, what do you wish for in this world? And they will answer something. What's the answer? Eh? What, what's the answer they always give? Eh, okay. World peace. That's what they always said. Oh, if there's one thing you could do in the world, you're like, world peace. What do you do the world peace? What do you do world peace? That's what they would, World peace. And if you ask anybody now, they'll tell you that they want, they want peace. They want world peace. Everybody wants world peace. They do. And it's always been a yearning in humanity. Because, I mean, that was the entire idea behind building the Tower of Babel. Like, oh, we're all united in this one thing. The problem is that they're trying to do it outside of God. Leaving God outside of it. And then trying to come together and plan. But what makes the Christian zone peculiar is that the Christian zone is the only one that can succeed. The unity of the body of Christ is the only one that can actually succeed. And when I say succeed, I mean succeed to its logical conclusion. Because every other unity is going to be outside Christ and is going to instead rot itself in mischief. So, a band of boys can come together and as a united front, decide that they want to go and rob a bank. They are united in their purpose. They go ahead to go and do it. But then, because he's outside of God, it's always going to end up in some kind of mischief. And it's always going to end up in some kind of fracturing. Because there was a movie, I can't remember the name. I expressed myself a lot in pop culture because I grew up with pop culture. But I've forgotten the name of the movie. Where a bunch of thieves stole a very big, a large song. It was an amazing thing. And they were all really excited. Until they all started to kill each other off one by one. So that one, only one person wanted to have it all. They didn't want to have to share this thing. And that's humanity. You know. We'll come together for our little causes and then when we come together for our little causes, 
if we're able to execute it, the fracture fracture starts to show. Because we are human. Because we are human. But Christian unity, because of who ordains it and who it is under, is what has the potential or the ability to succeed. Do we understand? Right? Okay. So, it's also quite fascinating that in that, um, if we go back to John chapter 7, it says that they may be one, right? Not become one, but be one in a state in which the Trinity is. Because Trinity are one. They don't become one, they are one. There's a present continuous attribute to it, which means that there is a constancy of that unity that must remain in the Christian faith. It's not okay for us as believers to be united in one age and then fracture in the next. It's continuous. And one of the biggest issues that Christianity has today is that lack of unity. That lack of unity of heart. And that unity is only achieved through having Jesus in us. Having Jesus in us. Verse 22. It says, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. The theme here continues. But Jesus said something. He said the glory that God has given to him. He has now given us to us. So what then is this glory? Because, I mean, if, if God has given Jesus something and then Jesus has given it to us, then we have to understand the identity of what it is. And if it says glory, then that means we have some sort of glory. And then we then have to ask ourselves, okay, what then is that glory that has been given to us? What then is this thing that God has given to us through Christ Jesus? So what then is this glory? Because it has to be something profound, right? Something that we cannot just overlook. Okay, no problem. Let's talk about it. Mm. So, if we move on with this text, we'll get to verse 24, where it says that, where Jesus was saying that, um, where I am, I want them to be there also. And I want them to see me in glory. Right? To see my glory. And when we say we see Jesus' glory, that's, that's Jesus as he is. In his glorious form, for lack of a better term, or in his unedited form, undiluted form, I should say. And we get to see him. And God has bestowed something upon Jesus that has not been bestowed upon us. What this glory is, in simplest, in simple terms, is the term Christian. So, we must realize that if God gave Jesus glory, that means that God gave Jesus something that the general populace did not have. Because if you think of glory as a term, what, what it connotes to you is elevation. Something above normal. 
something above in quotes natural for the for lack of a better term supernatural so in that case that means that if god has given jesus glory that means has given him something that everyone else did not possess jesus was able to do things that individuals could not do why because he had endowment from the father and now jesus is now saying that he has given that same thing to his disciples and because he has given it to his disciples, what that tells us is that we can now do things that normal individuals cannot do. Does this mean we have superpowers? No. We're not mutants. None of us here is Superman. None of us here has been bitten by a radioactive spider. Last I checked. If you have, please let me know. I'm always excited to hear about these things. But none of us are superheroes. But then we have something that other individuals do not have. And that's access to God. But not just access to God. We have access to his power. The Bible tells us that these signs shall follow them that believe. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They would heal the sick. They would um, drink poisonous substances. It will not affect them. And so on and so forth. Now ask yourself, does a normal individual have the ability to do any of these things? Does he? But why doesn't he? Because he lacks access to something. And that access that he lacks is a glory that we have received that we can do and we can access the things that other people cannot through Jesus Christ. And what that should do for us is that it really needs to cause us to further appreciate this great thing that we have called salvation. And this great access that we have to God. Because not everyone has it. Not everyone can do it. And so, verse 22. That they may be one just as we are one. And this is that access. It is that access to power and that ability that enables us to recognize one another. And it is part of what unites us. Because this thing helps to advance the purpose that we are united by. Verse 23. It says, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So, 
we can pick a couple of things here. First thing that becomes clear to us is that it is the desire of Jesus for you to make it. For you to, and when I say make it, I mean spiritually, so not just. You know. It is his desire. He wants it. In fact, he's doing here what he's doing right now at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf. Interceding on our behalf. So that these ones that you have given me, I want them to, I want them to be where I am. Because that's the ultimate desire of the bridegroom, is to be with the bride. That's what the bridegroom wants. He wants to be with the bride. And I think it's a sentiment that I have, um, it's a sentiment that I've expressed before, in that like, we must recognize that Jesus wants us so much. Like, we have the love that we direct to him. But he loves us so much more. He's, for lack of a better term, he's rooting for us. <laughs> he wants us so much more that we may be where he is, that we may behold his glory. Jesus wants to fellowship with you and I without any filter. That we can see him as he is, as John says. So we shall see him as he is. That we too will become more like him. That we will be in him. And he in us. Because he has been loved before the foundation of the world. This speaks to the eternity of Jesus. Jesus is eternal. He's, he's an uncreated one. When we think of him as the begotten son of God, it's not that one day God just decided to create him and birth him. He has been before. And the love that has existed between the Trinity has existed even then. Let's read verse 25 and 26. It says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus addressed God as righteous Father. God is a righteous God. There's a reverence to it that I think is, is something of note. It's of great importance. It's something for us to look at. But um, beyond that, um, let's look at verse 25 again. It says the world has not known him. Not that the world has not known of him, but that the world does not know him. But that I have known you. And this is known that you are sent. This is further affirmation that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Because 
people would people usually like to have this arguments that, that how how do we then tell that is this Christianity is the way? There are many ways to God, many ways to the Father. You know, there are many. Um, how did this person put it? Said there are many channels. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter which one you click on; that you are still being entertained, regardless of one. There was someone who stated it like that. It was quite unfortunate. Uh, person was trying to explain why, how he's able to be tolerant of all religions, even though he is or he claims to be Christian. He believes in God and everything. But he was like, it's all different channels. But Jesus is saying here, he said that the world has not known you. He said, but I have known you. Meaning that he is the only one that has that knowledge of the Father. These other people do not. They don't. They can't. Because they've never been with him. They've never been with him. And therefore, they can't know. They can't know him. They might know about him. They might profess him that, oh, there's a God. Sure, there's a God in heaven. Yes, God exists. Sure. But they've not known him. But Jesus here says that he has known him. And we have known that he was sent by God. Meaning that if someone knows somebody, that means that if you're going to reach out to that person, it's only through... I mean, if there's, if there's only one person that knows, I don't know, say, the president of an important country, and you wanted to meet said president, it only makes sense that you go through the person that knows him. You won't try and go through some other means. And even if you try to go through some other means, odds are that you'll just be ignored or you'll be pushed to a side because what's your own? We don't know you. Where is it supposed to come from? This proclaims the exclusivity of Jesus as the way to the Father. Because he's the only one through which we can go through. Only through him. And verse 26 says, And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus was saying that he has already declared the name of the Father to his disciples. He says, But I will continue to declare it. He says, And I will declare it. There are other verses I will say, I will continue to do so. I will continue to declare your name. What does this mean? This means that Jesus declared the word of God and the name of the Father while he was on the earth. But then he also means that he declared it even after his death and resurrection. But then how does he do that? He does that through his word. It is through his word that he declares the name of the Father. God. Because ultimately when we read this our Bible, it continues to point. And it then says that that the love which you have loved me with may be in them. So the love that God has towards Jesus, if it's going to dwell in us, 
then it's going to dwell in us because the word dwells in us. And I think that is the secret to Christian unity. The secret to Christian unity, if there is Jesus dwells in us, his word dwells in us, then we'll be united. We will. Because God is not the author of confusion. His word is not going to tell us different things. His word is going to tell us the same thing. The message is going to be the same. And therefore, if that word dwells richly in us, then the love of the Father will dwell in us. And then we can say we are united in our hearts. Because what you will find is that a lot of these fractions, a lot of these things, a lot of times we can attribute it to the fact that people are not having the word of God dwell in them. And people are not having Christ dwell in them through his word. And if we don't have that, that will continue to be a stumbling block for us as a body. Jesus is coming soon. And when he comes, he's going to come for a bride that is spotless and without blemish. But if that's going to happen, then that, that bride is one, has to be one. When Jesus comes, he's, going to, he's coming for a united church. He's not coming for a divided one. So that has to exist. That has to be in place. If not, what are we doing? If the word of Christ dwells richly in us and his love dwells in us, we'll be united as a body. And when we're united as a body, that in itself is a testimony and is a proof that we are sent of God and it's a proof of this Christian faith that we, pro- that we proclaim everywhere that we go. And so, as we come to the conclusion of this chapter, of this chapter 17, we see that Jesus, the overarching, one of the overarching theme, themes that we find is one of unity. Unity of the Godhead. Unity of the disciples. Unity of the church. Because without it, we can't really move forward as we should. It's of such great importance. We must be of one heart. But being of one heart isn't simply we parroting one another. It is the word of God dwelling richly in us and transforming us. Because then we'll be united in our purpose and what it is that we are out to do. Which is to push towards the reconciliation of the world to God. Because that has always been the desire of God, to reconcile the world to himself. And I pray that the Lord will help us in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. Praise your holy name. Thank you for teaching us with your word.
be exalted in Jesus' name. Father, I will come with the rest of the service into your hands. Father, take absolute control. Be with us, even now, to the very end, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. The Simple Gospel Church is a church arm of World Impact Ministries, dedicated to taking the gospel all over the world.